Well, good morning. Welcome to worship at Calvary. We are so, so glad you are here. Special welcome to anyone who is a visitor, somebody who's maybe just checking us out. We're so, so glad that you have taken the time to come this morning. Whether you're here in the worship center or you're over in the chapel or you're at our Minnetonka campus or maybe you're just watching online on your couch. It's great to, it's so great to come together and worship as the body of Christ. So this morning, I want to dive right in to our message uh, because there is a lot to get to. And this morning, we are going to look at a passage from the book of Second Chronicles, which is in the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible with you or you have downloaded the Bible app on your phone or your tablet or whatever way you like to engage with Scripture, I would like to invite you to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 31, and you'll be good to go. Now, if you're not familiar with Second Chronicles, it is a book of history, and it specifically covers the history of the nation of Judah. And Judah is the southern kingdom. When Israel is fractured in two, Judah is in the south. Now, the particular story we're looking at deals with a king named Hezekiah. And Hezekiah reigned in Judah in the 7th century BC. Now, most people would agree that the greatest kings in the Old Testament were David and Solomon. But if that's true, then a very close third would be Hezekiah. He's kind of the golden boy of the books of Chronicles. Now, one of the primary emphases of Hezekiah's reign was to reestablish true worship throughout his kingdom. See, he was very concerned that his people were becoming lost amidst a society that was distant from God, that wasn't even acknowledging God's presence, and they were tempted again and again to worship all sorts of false small g gods. So Hezekiah, in his devotion to the one true God, wanted to draw his people back to the one true God. And so his reign was marked with all sorts of intentional reforms that he put into place. So he reorganized the structure of worship that was used in the temple. He reorganized the roles of the church leaders who were in the temple. He purged the temple of any items that were idolatrous. So over time, like little statues and pictures and things had stacked up in the temple. And he said, we got to get rid of that. We need to purify the worship. And so they did that. He centralized worship so that people would come together in the temple to worship God. He brought in a new system of sacrifices. But most importantly, he reestablished the observance and the celebration of the Passover. It's a central aspect of Jewish worship. But over the course of many generations, Passover had almost died out. But Hezekiah saw this as an essential act because it was a remembrance of what God had done for his people. It, it put God back into the center of the story of the Jews. And so he reestablished this important yearly feast of Passover. Now, the biblical writers absolutely loved 
what Hezekiah did. Look at what is written about him in 2 Kings 18. It says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah after him or among those who were before him. Now, if you could write your, you know, the words on your tombstone or maybe just a little caption that would follow you in the history of your life, I don't know if it gets much better than that, right? I mean, he is summed up by someone who trusted the Lord and because of that, he stood out among all of the other kings of Judah. So in the passage we're gonna focus on together this morning, it really relates to the story of the process of reestablishing true religion and worship in Judah. Really what it's about is putting God back in his rightful place. And even though these events took place many, many, many centuries ago, there really is nothing new under the sun. You know, we might have better transportation, better technology, maybe better music, who knows. But in many ways, even though we live in 2023, we make the same mistakes that were made by these ancient people. So if you were here last week, or even if you weren't, the title of my message was The Competition. Since there's a competition within every one of our hearts, there's a competition within us for who or what is going to get our devotion and our commitment and our attention. Really, who or what is going to be first? Because something has to be first. When we elevate anything or anyone above God in our lives, that is called idolatry. And idolatry is incredibly harmful to us spiritually. But we also saw in scripture that it's not only harmful to us personally, but it also can be harmful to our kids and our grandchildren and all of the generations following. And so we also remembered that many of our idols are good things that we turn into God things. That many of the idols that we're tempted by are actually good gifts that God has created and that he has given to us, but we put them in the wrong position in our lives. And what we also learned is that idols make really, really bad gods because they always fail to live up to their promises. We will never find true meaning and purpose and security and identity in things apart from God. So whether it's money or status or power or fame or youth sports or a faster car or exotic vacations, they all fall short eventually. And so in the end of the message last week, I invited you to do a heart checkup, to take an honest look at your life, to see where your devotion truly lies, to be honest about what is truly first in your daily life. And to do so, I invited you to look at two tangible things, which I think gives a pretty accurate picture of where our heart is. And those two things are our calendar and our financial statements and accounts. Because we make time for the things that we truly care about, and our heart 
follows our money. So the first step is identifying the competition, about being honest about where our heart truly is. Who is first or what is first in our everyday life? And we see this happen in our text today. So again, we're in Second Chronicles chapter 31, starting with verse 1. And it says, when the festival ended, the Israelites who attended went to all the towns of Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh, and they smashed all the sacred pillars. They cut down the Asherah poles, and they removed the pagan shrines and altars. After this, the Israelites returned to their own towns and homes Hezekiah then organized the priests and Levites into divisions to offer the burnt offerings and peace offerings and to worship and give thanks and praise to the Lord at the gates of the temple. You see, Hezekiah's reforms helped the people understand the true status of their hearts. And they see that they too, like us, have been amidst a competition but they didn't even see it. They didn't even realize it. And the result of that is that the idols had won out and it impacted every part of their lives, but especially their relationship with God. But what we see here is that while recognizing this truth is important, that's not the end. They actually have to take the next step and do something about it. So let me ask you, have you ever had something in your home that's broken or it needs to be touched up or fixed and you know that that needs to happen, but you don't do it? Now you probably have never had that happen. I have it happen quite often. You know, there's like a outlet cover that should be replaced or there's a nick in the wall or something else. And I think, you know, we should really do something about that. But then maybe I walk past it for a couple days and then a couple weeks, and a couple months, and maybe even a couple years. And next thing I know, I don't even notice that that thing is even a problem anymore. Have you ever had that happen to you? Because you know, the same thing can happen in our hearts. We have to understand first that there's a competition in our hearts, that things are maybe out of whack, that maybe we've grasped on to things that we shouldn't have. Maybe we've put some things above God's rightful place. So the people in our passage, they understand now that they have abandoned their first love, which is God. They are worshiping idols. And I think it's important to notice that their call to action, the realization of the status of their hearts comes within worship. You see, when we worship to gather or we gather to worship God like we're doing this morning. It helps to bring alignment back into our lives. We suddenly can realize, man, I've elevated some things way too high. God maybe is no longer in his rightful place. And suddenly the idols that we have are exposed as hollow and weak and disappointing. It all flows from a heart focused in worship. So I realize that it is fall in Minnesota, but what is really being modeled in second Chronicles this morning is an invitation to do some spring 
cleaning in our hearts. It's an invitation to cleanse ourselves, just like the temple was cleansed in our passage. It's about taking an inventory of our idols and then making a plan to actually remove them from our life. You know, maybe like the people of God in our text for today, we need to smash up some stuff in our lives that is dishonoring to God, that's getting in the way of our worship of him, that's keeping him from our rightful place. So how we respond to the competition for our hearts is a daily challenge. And that's the title for the message this morning, The Challenge. Now, this is not something that we conquer and defeat once and for all, and then we're good to go and we never have to think about it again. No, this is a daily battle that we all face, just like the Israelites did. So let's continue on in our passage from Second Chronicles 31. This is verse 3. The king also made a personal contribution of animals for the daily morning and evening burnt offerings, the weekly Sabbath festivals, the monthly new moon festivals, and the annual festivals as prescribed in the law of the Lord. He's putting everything back into its proper order. In addition, he required the people in Jerusalem to bring a portion of their goods to the priests and the Levites so that they could devote themselves fully to the law of the Lord. When the people of Israel heard these requirements, they responded generously by bringing the first share of their grain, new wine, olive oil, honey, and all the produce of their fields. They brought a large quantity, a tithe of all they produced, the people who had moved to Judah from Israel and the people of Judah themselves brought in the tithes of their cattle and sheep and goats and a tithe of the things that had been dedicated to the Lord their God and they piled them up in great heaps. They began piling them up in late spring and the heaps continued to grow until early autumn. When Hezekiah and his officials came and saw these huge piles, they thanked the Lord, and his people, Israel. So the way that the people fought back against the competition in their hearts was to give sacrificially. But it's so important to see that this came after they chose to draw close to God again. Because this kind of sacrificial giving, this kind of generous living that they model and that we are called to flows from God working in us. When we allow him to have access to our hearts, to work in our lives, he begins to transform us into his image and into his character. And you know, we serve the most generous and loving God. And so here's a spiritual truth that I think we need to come to terms with. If we are growing in our relationship with Jesus, then we will be growing in generosity. It's a one-to-one relationship. Now, many of you know the mission of Calvary is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. That is our hope and our prayer for every person we connect with. 
No matter who you are, no matter if you've been a lifelong believer or you're a new believer, we believe there's another step you can take that all of us can continue to grow in our faith until one day we get to be with him forever. But if we're growing in our relationship with Jesus, it's not just intellectually. It's not just any other small component of our life. It's also growing in generosity because Jesus modeled generosity in who he was and what his priorities were. And so if we're growing in our relationship with Jesus, we will be growing in generosity. In verse four, the king put out a decree for the people of Jerusalem to bring their offerings to the temple. 10%, which is their very first 10%, is what was required of them. Now the people could have done this, checked it off the list, been good to go, and then just moved on. But that's not exactly what happens because in verse five and onwards, it says the people brought their offerings but didn't stop there. It's almost like this outpouring of generosity just primed the pump and they gave more and they gave more and they gave more. And the thing in the text is that everyone decided to get involved. It wasn't just the people of Jerusalem. It was the people of Judah and the people of Israel, the other kingdom, because generosity is so incredibly contagious. And so they brought their gifts. They brought corn and they brought wine and they brought olive oil and they brought their produce and they brought their cattle and their sheep. Remember last week we talked about how that was currency for them. It was the things of value in their lives. And it says in verse seven that the gifts continued to pile up for four months and there was no limit to their generosity. And meanwhile, they didn't give grudgingly. They didn't consider it to be an invasion of their privacy. They didn't consider it to be a pain in the neck to be generous. And why is that? Well, because it simply says in verse six that they saw their giving as an opportunity to give both to God and to those in need. Now you need to know, we're not talking about incredibly rich people here. This isn't a story about Israel's millionaires. This is a story about ordinary people, ordinary people like all of us who might not have much to give in the first place. But these people, they heard God's call. They saw the need and they gave whatever they could. And no matter how large or how small, They gave it. And you see, that's the spiritual transformation that God works in our lives, but also in our church community. Because everything we have belongs to God in the first place. It's all his. He made it, he created it, and he gave it to us. And really, when it comes down to it, we can't really give God anything because it's all his. And not only that, He's going to accomplish his plans with us or without us. But when we give our finances to the mission of the local church, well, then we're able together to impact our community and really the entire world. It's about God inviting us to be a part of what he's already doing, to be a part of his mission in our world. Now, it's the attitude of the giver 
that's most important. And what we see in our text is that it's an attitude of sacrifice. It's an attitude of worship. It's an attitude of giving all that we can to God and then trusting his promises, trusting them enough to become even more generous. You see, financial giving is a core part of worship. And it's a response to the fact that God has given so much to us, more than we could ever deserve and more than we could ever need. And of course, the greatest gift that was ever given is his only son, Jesus. So the challenge is, the way to defeat the competition is to give first and then live on the rest. Because if you wait to give later, if you save generosity for another day, well, there'll be no end to opportunities and justifications and competition. And God so easily, like we saw in our story, will become an afterthought. He becomes way lower down the priority list. And ultimately, that means God gets our leftovers. You know, whatever we don't end up spending on our own desires and preferences and wants. But isn't our God worth so much more than just our leftovers? Now, when it comes to tithing, tithing is giving our first 10% to God's mission through the local church. It's easy to try to explain this away, to say, well, that's way too legalistic. It's not practical these days. It's not realistic. Or it's way too Old Testament. What we need to remember is the truth is Jesus consistently raised the bar. Remember the rich young ruler who came to Jesus? Jesus said, well, sell all your stuff and give it away because he knew that that was a barrier to his heart. So tithing really is just a helpful baseline. It's a starting point. It's the, seal, or it's the floor, not the ceiling. And there are so many people here at Calvary who have experienced the blessings of tithing. So my wife, Lexi, and I, we started tithing as newlyweds, and we've never looked back, and we've never regretted it. That doesn't mean it hasn't been difficult sometimes. Sometimes we looked at our checkbook, and we looked at our bills, and all that was going on with our kids, and we wondered how we were going to make it. But God always has provided. Now, I've taught on tithing for 20 plus years, and I've never had someone who's tried it out come back to me and say they regret it. No, they've always said what a blessing it has been, how God has come close to them and how God has brought them through the many challenges that they face. But the thing about tithing is it takes intentionality. It takes planning. It means putting God and his mission above our own desires and preferences and even our own selfishness. Now, for you, if you're thinking 10% is not even, doesn't even sound reasonable, what I would encourage you to do is to pick a percent. Pick any percent. Because what that means is you have to have a plan and you need to be intentional. And it might be the first step in putting God first. Pick a percent and see how God will grow your generosity. 
Now, if we accept this challenge and we respond with generosity, something amazing happens. Let's look at the last two verses from 2 Chronicles. Where did this all come from? Hezekiah asked the priests and Levites and Azariah, the high priest and the family of Zadok. Hey, if you ever need baby names, go to 2 Chronicles. It says, since the people began bringing their gift to the Lord's temple, we have had enough to eat and plenty to spare. The Lord has blessed his people and all this is left over. Now this seems like a strange spiritual principle, but I've seen it play out in so many ways in my life and in other people's lives. And that's this, the more we give, the more we seem to receive from God. Generosity leads to God's blessings. Now, don't hear this wrong. Like you need to go buy a bunch of lottery tickets after church, or you should go put a huge amount of money on the Vikings game. It's not about a guaranteed money source. Now, God's blessings are so much bigger and better than that. But generosity leads to God's blessing. Now look at what the prophet Malachi says in Malachi 3.10. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Church, if we're prepared to be generous with our own resources and finances and possessions, then God truly blesses us in return and we will never lack what we need from day to day because we'll find even more margin and we'll find more contentment and we'll find even more joy, even with less in the eyes of the world. And I think it's because of this. Because God can do more with our 90% than we can do with 100% on our own. See, living generously is inviting God into the center of our finances, but really our life. God's blessing on 90% of your income is far better than 100% without his blessing and without his involvement. Again, generosity is inviting him into the center of our hearts. And remember, Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So I want to leave you with a question. And that's this. How can I put God first, not just in my words, not just in my stated beliefs, not just in the things that come easy to me, not just when I need something from God, but here's the question I hope you're asking. How can I put God first in giving? And as you ask that question, just let me gracefully challenge you a little bit. Be open to correction. If God is revealing to you that maybe you've got things out of whack in your life, be open to conviction but also be open to his grace-filled invitation. Pay close, or pay, pay close attention to your reaction because maybe it will reveal what God most wants to work on. If your first thought is, but it's mine, or it really doesn't matter, does it? Or I deserve it, 
or other people will give, so I don't need to. Maybe God is revealing the part of your heart that he wants to work on. Now, Malachi in chapter 310 that we just read says that God tells us, test me in this. He says, test me to see if my promises aren't true. Did you know this is the only place in the entire Bible where we are invited to test God, to see what he'll do if we put him first, to see what he'll do if we take him up on his offer. What if you would put him to the test? What if you would take the next month or three months or six months or next year and say, I'm gonna live out God's invitation for giving. I'm gonna challenge myself to live generously. I'm gonna put God to the test and see what he does. Well, next week, we're gonna have the opportunity to make a commitment. We started with the competition. Today, we've talked about the challenge and it all ends with a commitment. So what will your commitment to God be? Will you put your faith and your trust in Jesus and follow his plan for living and forgiving? What does it look like for you to express your love for what God has done for you? How can you respond in the way that he calls you to? So if you're on our mailing list, you're going to be receiving a generosity mailer in the mail, if everything works out right. If you're not on our mailing list, we have a bunch out at the information desk, so you could pick one up this morning. And inside, there's a pledge card. And we just invite you to prayerfully consider what God is calling you to give. And bring it back with you next week because we're all gonna have the opportunity to bring our pledge card up to the altar. But Calvary, imagine what God would do if we all embraced the challenge and if we trusted him enough to make a commitment to make sure that God is first place in our lives. I mean, what an opportunity we have to be a part of what God is doing in and through this place and all over the world an invitation to grow our partnership together in the gospel. What if we all truly put God first in our living and our giving? So in closing, I want you to take a look at a video about an experience my friend Adam had a few months ago and what he learned about generosity from some of the poorest people on earth. So take a look as we've been in prayer about this, you know, I got hooked up with a, an evangelist named Dr. Sammy Mignoni in Shine Ministry. Some of you are probably very familiar with that as he spoke here at the kickoff meeting and he talked about Nampula, Mozambique. I got invited on, on this mission trip and went over there and, and look, you know, as I, as I headed over there, again, not thinking that I would learn anything about generosity while over there, you know, all I know about Mozambique uh, after I looked it up on the map was that it was at one point several years ago, the poorest country in the world. You know, what was so fascinating about my time in Mozambique 
was uh, just not to be prepared for some of the most extreme poverty you'll ever see. I saw a lot of children on the streets that you know didn't have shoes. Again, same ratty clothes every time you saw them. I saw a lot of people uh, really eating garbage or eating out of the garbage. And again, the nothing really prepares you for that and so you know through that time and through that week I certainly didn't expect to learn too much about generosity other than you know uh, feeling guilty about the types of resources that we have well I had an incredible opportunity to be invited to a church service at the end and, and just a little bit of framework as to what happened over there it's uh, an 88% Muslim country and you know we went over there we shared the gospel uh, we partnered with 1500 local churches and it was an incredible experience uh, to see the churches come together and with that 800,000 people heard the gospel and 95,000 people gave their lives to Christ I mean this is a biblical move and again thinking back to generosity what that really meant we were invited to a church service on the last Sunday and again as all these churches came together at this church service the people were so moved by what they saw and what happened over there that the pastor took an offering and again in the back of my mind I'm thinking you know what what type of offering or you know again you I found out you know at one point that that most people live on less than a dollar a day they called to take an offering you know as it related to the mission and uh, again not thinking many people would come forward I was absolutely blown away to see the line start and start and start and pile on and on and on. I, I was so moved during this service, I, I, I couldn't even believe that, again, these people live on nothing, absolutely nothing, less than a dollar a day. And then they invited us up uh, after to pray over us. And, and what they did is they ended up taking uh, some of those money, those monies, and they actually handed it to us as an offering. They were so moved by what had happened, by what the Lord had done in Nampula, that their response was to worship. It was to worship through tithes and offerings. And they handed uh, this, uh, this pile of money here that I keep in my Bible uh, as a reminder of of, of what I observed. You know, you don't expect to see a lot of things acted out from the scriptures we study. Jesus talks about the widow's coins, the widow's might, and, and to see what that was giving. Got to see that acted out. But I think what I was most surprised at seeing was God calls for a cheerful giver. Well, I don't think I saw more joy in people's faces as they were giving away all that they have. So what I encourage everybody as we as we come into the end of the year here is just to be to be really prayerful about what God's calling you into. Again, I got an incredible lesson about what it meant to be a joyful giver, and uh, you know what what is God calling you to to give to Him? Again, He calls us to give everything to Him, and uh, but to be extra prayerful this year about uh, whether you know He's calling you to be more radically giving financially, more radically giving of your time, and and just uh, to sit back and experience what the what the joys of the Lord is going to be. God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need our money. Uh, what he does is he's inviting us to be the hands and feet uh, for, for him in this process.